Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this group of students who uh, on the week prior to spring break are giving up time to study, um, time to uh, go to the gym, time to enjoy uh, the first day of spring, uh, to come here and to sit and to fellowship with one another, to encourage one another and to hear your word proclaimed. And so Lord, we thank you that your word is good um, and that it is uh, living and active that you say it actually encounters our hearts. We pray that your word labors on us tonight uh, as it has done for centuries. And so we're grateful for that, Lord. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you haven't already, uh, turn to James chapter 4. Grant read the majority of what it is we're going to be looking at, but uh, we're going to be looking at a little bit more than what he read. And a lot of this text deals with planning. Our plans, our hopes, And you guys have perhaps heard, specifically around New Year's resolution time, the phrase, to fail to plan, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. For some of you, you're really convicted at that. Some of you are stoked because for the first time in your life, you're a planner. And so uh, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. And the point is, if you're not making plans, you're going to fail. And I realize this all the time when I go to the gym. If I go to the gym and I don't have a plan, I don't have my, uh, the weights that I want to use or the exercises I want to do, I kind of just wander around the gym and I'm introverted everywhere I go, which means I just bounce to the corner of the gym that has the least amount of people in it. And at, at my gym, there's a little corner by a fire exit that's probably five feet wide and like 15 feet long, and that's my zone. I go there, and I'll just camp out there, and sometimes someone else is in there, and I just don't know where to go. And I don't have a plan, and I kind of just wander around aimlessly with a towel in my hand as if I'm going to sweat without ever doing much sweating. But we love to plan, and we're in a stage of our lives where most of you are caught up in your plans. And so the question is, is... Uh, If you think right now, spring break is next week, what are you already planning on doing? What are you planning on not doing? What do you plan to experience, to achieve, or to accomplish? An interesting question is why do you feel like you have to plan in order for that to happen? Why are you making your plans? What's interesting is working with campus ministry for seven years now, I think, I don't know how long, um, I've crafted my three questions at orientations. When or- students come up and they're at our booth, I ask them three questions. I ask a four. What's your name? Well, they normally have name badges. Uh, in case you get scared and forget, you can look at your name badge and remember. Uh, what's your name? Where are you from? What are you studying? And my next question is what do you want to do with that? What do you want to do with that? And what's interesting, when you're talking to freshmen, most of them know their name, most of them know where they're from, a few of them know what they're studying, and even fewer know what they want to do with that. And yet when I ask that question, there's kind of this anxiety that they express. Because you would think, here you are traveling from Lord knows where to come to this campus to spend thousands of dollars. You would perhaps know what it is you want to do with the expensive piece of paper you're going to pursue. And they feel that. And maybe you have felt that. And so why do we plan and what do we hope for? Those things, when I'm talking to those students, it reveals far more than just casual conversation. It's actually revealing objects of hope goals, aspirations. 
And as we've been working through the book of James, James has been talking about how our words show our hearts, how our works show our hearts. And today he's actually talking about how our plans, how our aspirations, how our hopes show what our heart believes, what it is we trust, or to use James's language, what it is we worship. And so in looking at this text today, there are three things we're going to see. It's not up on a screen, and so I'm going to say it for us twice, for those of you who are note takers. We're going to see three things in this text. We're going to see the anxiety of planning, the oppression of wealth, and the comfort of hope. The anxiety of planning, the oppression of wealth, and the comfort of hope. So what I want to do is read James uh, 4, 13 through 17 right now, and we're going to look at the first point, which is the anxiety of planning. James says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that vanishes for a little time, or for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast of your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So how many of you are upperclassmen in here? A handful of you. Okay. How many of you are feeling the weight of needing to know what it is you're going to do when you get that expensive piece of paper? Yeah. And so when your parents begin to ask, maybe your parents are helping out with school and you begin, they begin to say, well, what's next for you? And you say, I don't know, but I'm going to San Diego for two weeks with my campus group. And they're like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> or someone comes up and they say, hey, have you, are you going to grad school? And you know you're not, but you feel like maybe you should. Maybe you would have greater acceptance in society Maybe they would feel better about you if you had something past your bachelor's or even that you had a bachelor's. And you feel this weight of saying, I need to know universally, kind of in your age bracket, what I'm going to do and how I'm going to get there. We'll say, tomorrow we will go here or there and we will labor and we will trade and we'll make a profit. But James is pointing out the foolishness of that. It's interesting. We need to stop before we just say all plans are foolish. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. But what James is saying is oftentimes we don't have control over the plans that we plot in our hearts. If you've driven down the Bitterit, uh, you may see off to the east or west uh, a mountain that looks like a ski area. But it is not. <laughs> And so uh, there is a mountain just south of Lolo. You could drive there in 15 minutes, and it's got 30 ski trails cut into it. A guy went onto Forest Service property adjacent to his land and just started clearing trees because he was so optimistic that he was going to build this luxury ski resort on Lolo Peak. And it turned out, after repeated appeals to the Forest Service, that they said no. But now we get the joy of looking at his shame every time we drive down the Bitterit and see these trails cut into land that he no longer owns because he got sued and it got taken away from him. 
But how many of us in our life have mountains with barren ski trails leading nowhere? How many of you have had families or friends who have had those kind of marks left in their life of striving and giving up everything, hoping to find what it is you want with meticulous plans and great labors only to look back and find ski hills leading to nowhere. And that's what James is talking about here, right? Who are you to know what's going to happen tomorrow? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But James is actually, it sounds really negative. And in a sense, there's some weighty connotations here. But James is actually trying to give us hope. That's what wisdom literature does. It's, it describes to us the world that is, and then it shows how the gospel helps us wrestle with these tensions. Because God is not against your plans. How many of you are planners? How many of you planned on me asking that? Okay. Garrett's hand lingered, which is weird. Um, God is not against planners. He's not. In fact, Paul, we see in uh, his writings, Paul planned to go to Rome. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go to where the gospel had not, or he wanted to go to Spain, excuse me, to where the gospel had not been proclaimed. He wanted to build his own foundation, not on a foundation of the gospel. It was already there. He wanted to go to new frontiers with the gospel. And God was not like, whoa, take it easy, Paul. Let's not be overly ambitious with our plans here. And we see in his writing to the Corinthians, he wanted to go back to the church in Corinth to encourage them. And it wasn't sinful. It wasn't wrong that he did that. So why is James in this text cautioning us so strongly about the plans that we make in our life? He's cautioning us because the posture of our plans matter. Do you notice the repeated word that was in this text? If you pick up again, in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And so what James is describing here is when we're making our plans, how many of our plans are silent boasts of who we want to be and what we want to accomplish for what he said earlier for our own profit? Right, that's what dri what's driving their plans here. He says, uh, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there. It's funny. They don't know which town. We'll go to such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and trade and we'll make a profit. They don't really know what, but they're making plans for their own profit. They're making plans to do well in this world, to make much of themselves. And in contrast to Paul, uh, there's a guy named Simon the Magician, which is a pretty cool name, but not a cool dude in scripture. And what happened is in Acts chapter eight, um, the early church is going around and they're preaching the gospel to people and people are believing and they're being baptized. And so they run into this guy named Simon the Magician, who kind of was uh, like uh, the pen and teller of the day. People knew who he was. He kind of had this following with him and he heard the gospel, believed the gospel, so they thought. Even the apostles baptized him. But then what happened was, uh, as the disciples were baptizing people, they saw these people be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is something that happens when we are genuinely saved. And he sees that happening, and he says, hey, if I give you money, will you give me the gift to give the Holy Spirit to other people? 
which says two things. One, Simon probably wasn't saved because he was so astonished at other people getting the Holy Spirit because he himself didn't have it. It's not this extra thing that you become Christian and if you're good enough, you get the Holy Spirit. Those who are saved have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and he sees this as a completely different phenomenon from himself. But then also, Simon the magician saw the money that this could make. If he could go around in the name of Jesus and he could purchase this, he could, he could buy the franchise rights to the Holy Spirit and then people could come to him and pay him money to receive that Holy Spirit. That's a pretty lucrative career, isn't it? And in fact, look at what uh, is rebuked in Acts chapter eight, where uh, it says, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither lot nor part in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you. So when it comes to your plans that you're making in your life, plans that perhaps you're not a planner and you're tired of your mom or your grandpa or your teachers or your campus pastor, Stephen, <laughs> making plans for you. And it's burdensome. Or you're the planner and you have all of these plans out to the nth degree. What's the posture of your heart in those plans? Who profits from the plans that you're making? And are they based solely on what it is you can achieve for yourself? Or are they based on what God's will might be for your life? James here says, what you should say is if the Lord wills, I should go. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we only do things, we sit passively and wait for God to send another book of scripture down that has March 20th, 2019 written on it. Now we know what to do. No, God has told us what to do. We're to go forth and make disciples. We're to glorify him with all of our life. So that means we ought to plan but the center of our plans, whether that's pursuing a degree or going on a missions trip or going to med school or graduate school or doing whatever it is you want to do, the center of those plans should be to glorify God by worshiping Jesus and serving other people with that gospel. Because that can't be taken away. Whether you get a degree or you don't get a degree or whether you succeed in the world to profit or you don't succeed in the world to profit, you can still do exactly what God has called you to do. And wouldn't that be freeing? to know that your plans will succeed. That's what's offered in the gospel. Because it's God who is in control of not only time, but it's God who is in control of our life. And when we align our will with his will, we're able to do things in a way that become bulletproof. Are your plans subtle boasts of your own self-confidence? Are they aspirations to accomplish much for God and his kingdom with the gifts that God has given you? One of those will lead to crushing anxiety and one of those will lead to sweet relief. Number two, the oppression of wealth. Let's read this. It's a safe thing for college students to read because you have no money. James 5, one through six. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten your garments and are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. In other words, he is not able to bear defense to your power and to your riches. And so here we see the oppression of wealth. And what's interesting is you notice kind of this disease language that James is using. It is eating away at your flesh like fire. Now, many of you, I imagine, are not independently wealthy here at the University of Montana, uh, nor am I not at the University of Montana, but we know what it's like to have our heart eaten by wealth, don't we? For example, I was at, uh, my family always does a white elephant gift exchange, similar to what we do at our Christmas party, and it's a $10 limit, and you buy a gift, and you put it in, and you wrap it, and you do the thing, and you could steal gifts at the end for a certain period of time, and I remember one year, it was going well, and it was actually like pretty good gifts for $10 white elephant gifts, like useful gifts, like a toilet, basketball hoop, and things like that that are really useful. And uh, I had something that I was content with, but then someone opened their gift, and it was a $100 bill. All contentment left. <laughs> we were there, and it was this fun family thing. We're rolling dice, we're stealing gifts, we're opening presents, and then all of the joy left. <laughs> Why? because everyone wanted the $100 bill. There was no more goodwill to men. There was no more glad tidings. It was, give me the dice, get my doubles, take your money, ha ha ha. And it really did. I remember sitting there being so convicted at my heart because I had zero capacity for joy. All I wanted was the money and nothing would satisfy it. If I got the money, which I did, you're terrified. You're, I didn't keep the money. My brother got it. and He's the banker. Uh, so you get the money and you're just fearful of someone taking the money. And if you don't have the money, you're anxious to get the money. And this is perpetual cycle until the final bell rings and judgment comes and the winner stands up and has his money and the rest of us get nothing. I felt like Smeagol with my precious, like this is mine, I want it. But what's interesting is this isn't new. Tolkien, who invented Smeagol, knew of this drama. In The Hobbit, he talks about a dragon named Smog who sits on this uh, lavish expanse of treasure on this castle. And he says this about Smog the dragon. His rage passes description, the sort of rage that's only seen when rich folk that have more than they can enjoy suddenly lose something that they have long had but never before used or wanted. His rage is like that of a rich person who has more than they could possibly have, who loses something that they never thought they needed or wanted. So why is that upsetting to smog? Why is that upsetting to a rich person? Why is it upsetting to you? Because we're constantly looking for something outside of us that we could take as our own to give us comfort, to give us control, to give us power. And in our world today, and in the world 2,000 years ago, money was able to buy all of that. 
It's funny, if you just go look, if you Google machine, money can't buy me happiness, just look at how many people say opposite. Or they take that and they say, that's not true because look at what I have. And they crush it. And generally, what's interesting is a lot of rich people, especially in the social media world, they flaunt their richness. I was on Twitter the other day, and I tried to see if it was a parody account to the best of my ability, and I don't think it was, but his Twitter handle was richer than you. And all of his tweets were just trying to express the money that he had, the power that that could wield, and the joy that he could purchase with that. And we see in this text why the Bible is constantly warning about the difficulty that it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because not only is it eating at their own skin in discontent, but we saw the oppression this wealth brings in this text too, right? The people who mowed your lawn, who you owed money, you withheld that. You have slaughtered the righteous. You have fattened yourself at the neglect of everybody else. And what's interesting is just about anybody who climbs the ladder in corporate America immediately begins to have skeletons pulled out of their closet of ways they've treated others around them, extorted, taken advantage of. Because when we have a desire for money and the closer we get to money, just as Tolkien described with both smog and smeagol, our hearts begin to do anything to get the reward that money promises us. And what's interesting is you look socially, things like communism and things like socialism that recognize and try to, they're like, this is bad and this happens. They diagnose it, but then the prescription is wrong. They try to prescribe it by getting rid of the money or evenly distributing the money. But the problem isn't the money. The problem's our hearts. Our hearts will always long for something as long as that something we long for is not God. It will never be satisfied. And it will always lead us to consider other people as less important than ourselves. Money uh, Jesus himself says man cannot serve God and money and that's because we are so quick to make money our God. And how many of your plans, how many of your, your career decisions, your academic goals are only goals because it provides one day greater money than another degree? To live in a specific town because the opportunity for wealth is greater in that town. That was it for me. When I came to school, I wanted to do physical therapy because I wanted the money. I wanted the comfort. I wanted to be involved in sports. I wanted it for me. I was a glutton for my own comfort and I didn't consider anybody else in that process. And so one thing I want to ask you guys who may not have an exorbitant amount of money is what has God given you that you are rich with, that you are refusing to give to God, or you are holding back from those who are around you? God has given us personalities, God has given us strengths, God has given us richness in specific ways, and we can either use those for our own comfort, or we could use those and leave it, and not let other people have any access to that, not use it to serve other people, but even in doing that, we'll never find satisfaction. We'll only find oppression. Our own heart will always be in fear and we'll do anything to keep the peace. You see, the problem is that we can either be one who plans ourselves to death 
or one who feels remarkably out of control with our own plan. We can be one who is rich with comfort to the disservice of everyone else, or we can be one who is oppressed by the extravagance of others. But it's the wisdom of James that brings rest to you regardless of who you are. And so that's what James does. In the first part, it says, look at the anxiety of those who plan. The second part says, look at the oppression of those who long for wealth. But then look at what happens in verse 7 as we look at the comfort of hope. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Isn't that the opposite of what we just saw with those who desire wealth? We crush those to get wealth. Be at peace. Do not grumble with one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation." And so here we have this gospel application of James where immediately he says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You who plan, look at the plan of God. You have seen his compassion and his mercy. You who lack compassion and mercy for your own gain, look at the compassion and look at the mercy of God. And he points this, he's ultimately pointing to the gospel, but with how James is writing, he's leaving us to assume that. We'll get there. And he gives us three examples. The first example of patience of being patient, is a farmer. Garrett, you're from a farming community? I know there's a debate. You're the farm girl? He grew up in town of 700 people. 1,200 people? 60 people? 180, wow. That's dope. Um, So he uses an example of a farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Isn't patience the worst thing we have to learn? We live, I call it the microwave generation. We live in a world where if you can't have it, how many of you guys will press the add 30 second button twice before you hit a minute button? Yeah, we have commitment issues, seriously. I don't know why we do it, and I don't know what that has to do with this. I just wanted to confirm some statistical data. We want it now. We don't want to wait. We want, I was in Portland this last week, and they were telling me about Amazon now. We're like, you can order something on Amazon, it'll be to your house in two hours, and I have to wait two days. I want that. I want it now. It's my money, and I want it now. Call J.G. Wentworth. We know the drill. The idea of patience and waiting is something that is looked down on. If you can't afford Amazon Prime and you have to wait four to five days for shipping, can you even? (laughs) If you're pursuing a relationship and you're not giving in to making out and the culture of sex that our campus wants to provide, who are you? 
Why would you withhold that from yourself? If you are one who knows that the work of your degree is going to manifest itself in lives over decades instead of dollar bills in years, why would you choose to do that? Think about it. Even from a purely secular philanthropic position, why would you wait for any of that? Because you know, if we deny the idea of a creator God, then we can't hope to find any sort of substantial meta-narrative in life. And so why would we wait and hope that delayed returns will actually satisfy us? You see, it's only the gospel that can give us patience. It's only the gospel that he says can establish our hearts because we are not banking on random circumstances of life unfolding in front of us. We know that there is a God who has promised to give good things to those who trust in him, good things to those who have faith, good things to those whose hearts are established in the Lord. And so in your life where you are wrestling with the smallest sprout that's been looking the same way for three weeks, where is your hope? And what will be your reign? What is it that will bring relief to you? And is it the God who controls the reign? Or is it returning back to your wealth? Or returning back to your plan? John Calvin, who's a dead theologian, which is often the best theologian, says this, God sends us adversity to call our patience into action. If we are not patient, our faith necessarily vanishes, for it cannot exist without patience. If you are a believer who never has to wait for anything in your life, I wonder what it is you're believing in. Because scripture is clear that to follow Christ is not to immediately gain your life, but to immediately lose your life. To follow Christ is to find rewards not in the immediate, but in the eternal. And that's where we see the second example where he speaks of prophets. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Everybody wants to have the relationship with God that the Old Testament prophets have. No one want the job of the Old Testament prophets. Because if you read what the Old Testament prophets are doing, God's saying, these people really, 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 really hate me. Go tell them that. Go be the bearer of bad news. Go tell them that what they're doing is wrong. But that's what the prophets did. God called the prophets and he said, go to them and I, their heads are gonna be like flint. They are not going to listen to you. And they're like, well, is there another option? Go and say it again. Can you imagine Noah building an ark? Not a quick fix. And saying there's going to be rain. There's going to be rain. There's going to be rain. There should be rain. People resisted it. And they had to trust, not in their circumstances, but they had to trust in the object of their hope. They had to trust that behind the word of God, 
was the God who speaks the word. And what we know in first, second Peter, second Peter says this, Peter says this in second Peter, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he's using kind of prophetic language here in this, but he's saying the prophets, they had a prophetic word. You have a greater prophetic word in what he calls the morning star. It's just him talking about Jesus. The prophets had to hope in the word of God without seeing it. We get to hope in the word of God by having the whole record of Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection and his promises and the history of the church behind us to say, we can wait and we can hope and we can trust because we have seen and heard God working throughout all of history. Can you wait? Can you plan hoping and knowing that the reward of your labor does not have to be immediate. It does not have to look like the world's reward system looks like. It can look like bearing fruit in faith and hope. He uses the example of Job. Job is a guy in scripture whom Satan tempted. God gave Satan permission to go and say, see if Job will fall away. His life is easy. He's the one righteous dude who got all the wealth and harmed no one. Of course, it's easy to believe in Jesus when you have all things in your favor. So God says, Satan, take him away. Test my servant, Job. Cause him to suffer and see where his hope is. So Satan attacked Job's family and attacked Job's wealth and attacked every circumstance around Job so much so that at one point, Job's lovely, beautiful wife came to him and said, curse God and die. But Job suffered and continued to serve God because he knew that God would never let him down. And Job as a suffering servant reminds us of Isaiah's suffering servant. The one of whom it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to number him among the transgressors, to divide his lots, to pierce him, to cause him to bear the sin of us all. If we Christians think that we will only have contentment if our plans prosper and our pockets are full, you've picked the wrong Jesus to follow. Because our Jesus was murdered at the hands of angry men and crucified as a wanderer without a home. And yet he is the one who overcame death. He is the one who looked into all of our weakness and our inability to control, and he said, I have controlled it for you. He is the one who saw everything that our plans and that our money is trying to overcome, and he says, it's not the money and it's not the lack of motivation, it's your heart, and I've come to fix it. I've come to bear the penalty of rejection. I've come to take care of your boasting and take care of the oppression of your heart by offering myself as a sacrifice for you. You see, it's only when we have the comfort of the gospel hope that we can begin to plan clearly and not be crushed by it. It's only by the comfort of the gospel that we can have wealth and not oppress people, but we can have wealth and use it to bless people. Because only in the gospel we see that we do not have any need 
because Jesus was the plan of God and the blessing of God on the cross for us. You've heard, perhaps, I don't know if this is true, I've heard it multiple times, how they catch monkeys on Madagascar with coconut. Is that what you're nodding about? Nope. If you want another way to catch monkeys, you can talk to Noah afterwards. But they, they, they chain a coconut to the ground, and they drill a hole in it, and they put a little snack in the coconut. This is it? Okay, all right. Anyway, we, uh, so the monkeys, they, they, they smell the snack, and they're mischievous little, little goobers. And so they go, and they stick their hand into the hole, but the hole is just the right size for an open hand to fit in. But when they grab the, the snack, they can't get it out. The problem is, is they are so smitten by the snack that they will not let it go. And so what happens is the hunters just come up to dumb monkey stuck to a coconut in the ground and they <laughs> grab him by the scruff of the neck and do whatever they do with their monkeys. <laughs> but the point is, is what do we do with a text that shows the failings of our plans and shows the oppression of our wealth, but promises hope in the gospel? Well, it might be that God is calling you to give up something, to open your hand from the cosmic coconut and to trust that in letting go, something's going to be okay. That in falling back on the gospel and letting go of whatever it is that you're holding on to for your hope, for your comfort, or for your satisfaction and choosing instead to trust in Jesus, to establish your heart before him and to find rest in him. You see, it's only in the gospel that all that glitters really can be gold, even in the hardest times, because it's in the hardest times that we are reminded of the great gift we have in God. A God who is bigger than contentment, but is the God who promises contentment in the darkness. So what do you need to give up in order to trust God more? What is your plan, your boast? What is your comfort that you will sacrifice anything to have? And how can we give that to God and say, help my heart. Cause me to hope in you. What are you hoping for your plans to provide that Jesus has already provided you in the gospel? Because when we do that, we can plan to succeed by laying all of our plans at the feet of Jesus who has promised all things to work to his will and for the good of those who trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray um, that you convict our hearts as to where we are crushed by either having someone else's plan defined for us what satisfaction or success is, or by our own plans, but instead you will see that there is a plan, there is a way that is right, there is a way that brings us satisfaction, and Jesus did it for us. That coming to the gospel is not coming to a plan that demands from us, because Jesus has met the demands for us, and so finally we can rest, and instead we can work according to your will, not our own efforts. Lord, we pray that as we look for what brings us comfort in our wealth or power in our skills, 
that we can see that Jesus left his wealth and left his comfort to pursue us. So we also can use the things that provide us comfort not to harm or oppress others, but to serve others. Lord, I pray that you help us establish our hearts by seeing that you alone are what bring us rest in a world of failing plans and fleeting pleasures. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.